The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Tuesday, May 31st, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Over this Memorial Day weekend, we started burying the dead in Uvalde, Texas. Texas Governor Greg Abbott explained why he wasn't keen on lowering the AR-15 age to match the age to imbibe a wine cooler. Ever since Texas has been a state, an 18-year-old has had the ability to buy a long gun, a rifle. Uh, Right. And since that time, it seems like it's only been in the past decade or two that we've had school shootings. So for a century and a half, 18-year-olds could buy rifles, and we didn't have school shootings, but we do now. Maybe we're focusing our attention on the wrong thing. In fact, maybe we are. Let us focus on what a long gun means now versus what it meant in 1845, the year Texas became a state. In 1845, the most popular rifle the rifle that outgunned the Mexicans in the Mexican-American War, was the Springfield Model 1842, a 69-caliber musket capable of firing around every 20 to 30 seconds. That was based on the skill of the rifleman to load the gun from the muzzle. The AR-15, or variants Bushmaster XM-15 series, Sig Sauer 400, Smith & Wesson M&P-15, you know the family of weaponry to which I refer. They fire, oh, easily one per second, really as quickly as you could pull the trigger with a 100-round magazine, and let me check the legality of that in the state of Texas, totally legal. I bet a dedicated triggerman can get off almost 100 shots in a minute if he were willing to sacrifice accuracy. And it seems the governor is willing to sacrifice accuracy in that it is not the case that we didn't have a school shooting for 150 years from 1845 onward. In fact, the school shooting era was ushered in by a Texan, Charles Whitman, who killed 17 people and injured 31 from the University of Texas Tower. And those 31 and 17 do not include a fetus in the pregnant mother's belly. Abbott was a nine-year-old boy in Texas at the time. It was the most notorious news story of that year. He surely knew about that home state carnage. You know, I could come out with the dumb deflection of the day when it comes to gun control. For instance, today, Senator Steve Daines came out as opposed to moving the AR-15 ownership age to 21 based on the argument, quote, those who want to break the law will find a way to get around the law which is, in fact, an excellent argument against laws, just laws at all, from this Montana lawmaker. But I did especially want to highlight the lowlights of Abbott's argument, just because it is so rare that we get a chance to go back so far and find a person tasked with protecting the public interest who is so wrong for so many reasons. On the show today, why the gun debate right now, and maybe only for a little while longer, is... Slightly different from almost every other political debate in America. But first, we have the Celtics against the Golden State Warriors in the upcoming NBA Finals. But we forget history, not just NBA history, pre-NBA history. We do such a poor job at remembering basketball history, which is African-American history, and as such, 
American history. Claude Johnson is the author of and chronicler of an era that lends its name to the book, The Black Fives, The Epic Story of Basketball's Forgotten Era. Claude Johnson joins us next. So you probably know about Negro League Baseball, the great players who eventually, after so many years, some of whom were allowed to show their skills in the major leagues, Jackie Robinson, Josh Gibson, possibly the Babe Ruth of the Negro Leagues, and Satchel Paige. But in the sport of basketball, there was a similar story, not exactly the same, and it's gone so undernoted, undernoticed, and underappreciated, and it is as rich and fascinating as the story of the Negro Leagues, which thankfully Major League Baseball has just actually incorporated the statistics of Negro Leaguers into the official all-time statistics. That's a nascent movement with basketball, but if there is one person who is an expert on this era and this subculture of basketball history, it is Claude Johnson. He is out with a new, the authoritative book on the Black Fives. That is the name of the book, The Black Fives, The Epic Story of Basketball's Forgotten Era. Claude, welcome to The Gist. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. So it's more than a forgotten era. I mean, as you know, as a storyteller, you tell the story through people. And these were, you know, oftentimes people who rightly should be seen as legends of a game that is dominant in our society. And they died penniless and buried in paupers' graves and entirely forgotten by history. How did this happen? That's a great question. And so, you know, that's you're referring to uh, some of the pioneers, including uh, one man who I focus on in the book, uh, who was born in the 1880s and died in the 1970s. He rose from from poverty in the in the little Africa section of old Greenwich Village, became the king of black basketball and then lost it all. And Eventually, when he died, he died and was buried in an unmarked grave in New Jersey. And so this, in a way, is the story of his redemption and also how he was forgotten. And then through him, the history of the Black Fives era that that you refer to, that you pointed out, was also buried. And so this effort is not only to put a tombstone on that grave with a proper epithet, but also this book in a way becomes the tombstone, the, the proper tombstone for this history, um, which was which was long lost and, and forgotten. The, the reason why that happened is, is not really so much anybody's fault in those days. It's just because the NCAA took off in 1950, um, HBCU conferences started to take off and get talent. And then the NBA, uh, took off and went its its own direction, and the Globetrotters went in their own direction. And there was really no reason to look back at this history at that time. Right. So there was this divergence. Basketball doesn't really become a massive popular entertainment until the post-war period. But take me from the time between, I think most people know, Dr. James Naismith invents the game in Springfield up until the pre-NCAA um, 
pre-war, right around World War II era. How popular was basketball? How popular was white basketball? How popular was black basketball? And how different were the two things? You know, that's that's what's great about about this book is that I, I try to go into that into that era where how did you have an all-black team like the New York Renaissance who were based in Harlem that was able during the Great Depression, during uh, Jim Crow, to go out on the road and visit an all-white state like Wisconsin and go to an all-white town like Oshkosh and then play the local all-white all-stars, beat that team, leave safely, and then get invited back year after year after year for dozens of games. And the reason is that first you had collaboration, but also these all-black barnstorming teams were like a mobile economic stimulus package. There was nothing else going on, Mike, right? So you so you have people coming from miles around to go to a game where the they would spend money on merchants, on the saloons, on uh, restaurants, hotels. Maybe there was some gambling on the side. And, um, you know, this is what this is what it was during the during the Great Depression. And so these teams, they went out and they not only popularized basketball in remote places um, because they were typically playing against a local white team, but they were also this this novelty, this um, amazing team that was coming in. They were colored champions. They were they were heralded as as being the best in among the best in the country. Um, And so they but they also. They also helped make it, they helped normalize African-American men specifically in a positive role, in a positive image. Most of these places, maybe they hadn't even ever seen black people. And sometimes they, they definitely hadn't seen black people in a positive light like that on the court. So this was really a, a breathtaking, you know, uh, several decades of, of breakthrough that, that I'm covering. Were the Wrens better and a bigger draw than the Globe Trotters in, I guess, the teens, twenties, and thirties? Well, the Wrens were formed in 1923, so we're coming up on the hundredth anniversary of the inception of that team. And uh, at the beginning, they were definitely the the best team, and all throughout the period, even into the racial uh, integration of the NBA in 1950. They were considered the best team, even better than the Globetrotters. They, in the one time that they met the Globetrotters, they beat them, and it was in the 1939, the inaugural World Championship of Professional Basketball, and they put both teams in the same side of the bracket, so, you, so they had to beat the Globetrotters to get to the final, which was against uh, the Oshkosh All-Stars, actually, speaking of them. Right, the, the white team in the finals. And so what were the, when did the Globetrotters decide to emphasize the clownishness, which I know was a controversial choice. I guess economically it was the right one, but when did they diverge and the Globetrotters, I guess, just stopped becoming a team that was trying to win games and just started to become a team that was trying to entertain audiences through comic basketball? Well, I go into that. The This book is really, it's kind of like if you're a nerd, it's like taking basket, black basketball history to the hexadecimal level, to the right. to the binary, you know, zeros and ones that of where it came from, the genesis, and 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 I go into that specific aspect of where did the the comedy and the clowning and the routines come from, and 
Um, one thing that happened is that if you were an all-black team in Wisconsin or wherever you were, in order to get invited back, you couldn't just totally crush them by 30 points or right. 50 points. Even if, yes. you, even if you could, you wouldn't want to because you might not get invited back. It wouldn't be entertaining. Right. You, and you, you couldn't stand over your opponent and scowl. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, although what happened is that you would want to keep that game relatively close so that the locals could at least say, hey, we gave it a really great effort. We were very competitive. We almost beat this team that was the colored world champions and they've beaten the Celtics and we almost beat them. So our boys did pretty well. And, and if you got that type of a result, then you'd get invited back because there was always this chance that your local team could win. So in order to do that, though, you had to sometimes play keep away, mm -hmm. right? Because you take... My friend John Isaacs, the late John Isaacs, who I befriended, who played for the Wrens on that 1939 team, um, you know, he was a longtime resident of the Bronx and he was a favorite, uh, all, you know, icon and veteran in Harlem. Uh, he said, what we would do is we would just go out and get the first 10 points as fast as we could, because those are the 10 points the refs are going to take away. So they would get that lead and they just keep the lead. And then in order to do that, you had to move the ball around and that's where that motion offense was was innovated and because of that um now you have this uh introduction of comedy and uh bob douglas who was the owner of the wrens didn't want to do that he never was into that but abe saperstein who was the manager at the time of the harlem globetrotters who were actually out of chicago started going up into wisconsin and in one game in this one game they only had four players so he stepped into the lineup and because he was so inept at playing the crowd was laughing and then it dawned on him that wait comedy could be something that we introduce here that's that notion stuck with abe and so when the when the league was was eventually integrated he he took that all all out like to the you know, put that on steroids and just kept going and toured Europe and went to Asia and other places. And so that's kind of where that, where that, where that came from. But I go right to the roots of that in, in this book. If we could go back to the era when the Wrens were the dominant team, was there, was it just exhibitions that they were showing their dominance or were there, there was the World Series of Basketball, was there actual league play where the basketball aficionados could point to these leagues and saying this is the premier version of basketball in America? Yeah, because uh, when the when the Wrens were formed in 1923, there were, there were teams that were dominant during that time, the New York Whirlwinds, the New York original Celtics, the uh, Philadelphia uh, Svaz, which, which were the, the South Philadelphia Hebrew Association, um, and other teams, the uh, second story Maury's uh, from Pittsburgh, um, an, an all-Jewish team, and, and others. And, and the Wrens would just come in and play those teams and beat them and dominate them, right? So, uh, and, and at the same time, there was the rise of black college basketball as well, Morehouse and uh, Morgan State, and they would beat those teams. So mm -hmm. um, there wasn't really a league, but there was this informal network of, uh, of, of games that were played. And, you know, the, the Rens and, and other teams, but specifically the New York Renaissance, would go, would travel. They would play 120, 130 games a season and win probably, you know, 85 and sometimes 90% of those games. In 1933, 
during the 32-33 season, they, they won 88 straight games in 86 days, um, which is which is which at the time was a professional record. The I'm previous gonna, I'm record, gonna guess it won't be beat at least in that time span. <laughs> probably <laughs> too many probably basketball be doubleheaders these days for right? the same team. Yeah. Yeah. But the previous record was 44 by the right. New York original Celtics, who have many of their players in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um, and, and the New York Renaissance now do as well. And why do you think basketball was so embraced? I mean, baseball was too, but basketball has a special place among African-Americans and in black America. How do you explain that? You know, if you go back and I kind of talk about this in my book is why this was so important. And, you know, my editor at Abrams, he, he would always say, you know, you haven't even gotten to the basketball yet. Well, the reason but, you're writing this book really isn't the basketball. You're a fan of basketball, but that's not what drives you, not just to write this book, but essentially to dedicate your life to uh, excavating all the material you can about that. And it's not just, you know, crisp bounce passes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, I almost look at it as uh, we're on a basketball train, but if you look out the windows at the scenery going by, that's black history. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this starts in the 1800s. And as, as I said, I'm following this man, Will Anthony Madden, who I think is a, should be a candidate for enshrinement in the basketball hall of fame. And, um, you know, we're following his life and it's almost like the, the, uh, for people who remember the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, but the black basketball version of that. And it's, it's a tale of redemption, but, you know, you go back to the very beginning and you say, okay, why was it that basketball became so popular back then? This, I'm talking about 1904, 1906, 1910. And part of it was that cities were overcrowded and black communities were overcrowded, underserved. So I had to ask, well, well why were they overcrowded? So then you, in order to answer that question, you've got to look at the South and what was happening and why people were, why there was a mass exodus of black yeah. folks leaving the South, coming to Chicago, coming to Philly, Washington. Great migration, right. Pittsburgh, yeah. And, and that created such overcrowding that um, health conditions started to, uh, you know, it was a health crisis really of pneumonia and tuberculosis. And people didn't realize at the time that these are highly contagious diseases. They just thought, oh, it's because of overcrowding and because of lack of physical fitness. And, and that's where the Alpha Physical Culture Club, which was the first all-black athletic club, came into, into place um, because they realized, hey, we, we have to work out. We have to go and do something and, and exercise our lungs. That's the only way to fight this disease. And that led to basketball and everybody gravitated to it. And then it became a social thing because right around that time, the the phonograph and radio were, became popularized as a, as a commercial thing that you could a person could buy, and so ragtime and 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 blues, which was previously only available as sheet music on a player piano, now all of a sudden people could listen to it, and there was this dance craze that happened as a result. And because it was a dance craze, there was a ballroom construction craze, and, be, and these ballrooms sat there. And then this was an opportunity for black talent, rather than doing minstrelsy, to come out and perform in front of black people before a game, at, during halftime, and after a game. And uh, so all these early ads would say basketball and dance. And that's why the, Ren, so became, the Ren, Harlem Rens were the Rens. That's right. I know you have a lot of physical 
artifacts, historical items. Uh, I guess if you look at it one way, you could call it memorabilia. Where do you store that? Um, should that be displayed somewhere so it could be appreciated by people other than in the pages of your book? Yeah, thank you. It, you Mike is for you for the listeners is referring to that this my book has 85 full color glossy photos uh, as inserts into the book. And um, we have, you know, upwards of a thousand or more uh, artifacts, ephemera, ticket stubs, um, objects like balls with leather balls with laces. Uh, we even have an old uh, basketball rim and net from 1905. We have uh, footwear from from back in those days um, and other gear. And um, what's great about that is uh, we have been contacted in the past by museums like the LBJ Presidential Library. We had a great exhibition there. We also had an exhibition at the New York Historical Society. Shout out to them. And then we were also in the Museum of the City of New York um, last year. And we also now have an online museum courtesy of a sponsorship by Puma. You know, it's, it's just, it's a way f- to get people to interact with that history in a way that they might never have before. And that's why our slogan is make history now because we're just trying to find ways to bring this history back to life today. Claude Johnson is an historian and founder of the Black Fives Foundation. His book is The Black Fives, The Epic Story of Basketball's Forgotten Era. Claude, thanks so much. You're welcome. It's an honor to be with you, Mike. And some dates. If you want to see Claude Johnson, get an autographed copy of the book available for purchase. Tomorrow, he'll be speaking at the Greenwich Library in Connecticut. Uh, That's at 7 p.m. And then June 8th, in a week's time, at the Puma Flagship Store, they're going to have an event at 5 p.m., the Puma Flagship Store in New York City a little while later. Uh, June 26th, Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. Claude will be everywhere. Check him and his book out. And now the spiel. Otto van Bismarck called politics the art of the possible, to which every U.S. senator over the last two decades silently addended, but not the probable. In order to get something passed on the issue of gun control, Democrats, or at least the ones who have some semblance of hope left within them, are trying to create verbal permission structures for their Republican colleagues. Joe Biden called Senator Mitch McConnell and Senator John Cornyn rational. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, said on ABC's This Week This Week. There are more Republicans interested in talking about finding a path forward this time than I have ever seen since Sandy Hook. And well, in the end, I may end up being heartbroken. Um, I am at the table in a more significant way right now with Republicans and Democrats than uh, ever before. Certainly many more Republicans willing to talk right now than we're willing to talk after Sandy Hook.
Well, after Sandy Hook, the proposed legislation failed, so if there weren't at least that many, there would be no point to any of this. As far as the Republicans willing to talk or think, Mitt Romney's one, and Republican Pat Toomey co-sponsored a bill to require more expensive background checks in 2013. Back then, the bill had support from three other Senate Republicans besides Toomey, but one, John McCain is dead, another, Mark Kirk was voted out of office, but that does leave Susan Collins. So even if you count the rational caucus of McConnell and Cornyn and some flattery by the president doesn't actually convince you to count that as a caucus, it does seem the Senate is far from the 60-vote supermajority needed to survive a filibuster. But I do see one reason for a glimmer of hope. It's this. The gun issue right now is behaving a little bit differently from most of the other issues that fall prey to our politics. The driving force in politics is, of course, negative partisanship. Each party earns more support from their side for sticking it to their rivals than for any other reason. The Republicans love to own the libs, and lib ownership is more important than any actual gain that they can make. It's like the old saying goes, when owning a lib is criminalized, only criminals will own libs. Actually, that's not a saying, and it's not relevant to our issue. But what I am saying is that, at least for now, defeating a Democratic proposal on this issue, guns, it's not gleeful. It's not jutting your chin out. It's not high-fiving one's fellow Republican. It's a little different. There is some sadness in the air, some sense among some Republicans, that this might be a rare occasion to pass legislation supported by their own constituencies. The senators I'm thinking of, and by the way, the constituencies I'm thinking of aren't in places like Wyoming or or Montana, and aren't senators like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or any unshakable Second Amendment absolutist. But rational politics dictate that when your constituents are upset, you as an elected official can pass legislation that makes them less upset and you will get credit for that act. Of course, there are plenty of ways for a wavering conservative public servant to shake off this odd temporary feeling of, I need to serve the public. There are all the usual. There are interest groups that will punish a conservative for apostasy. There are single-issue voters on guns. There are challenges from the right in general to think about. There is still support from the gun lobby, though diminished. And there are the arguments being made in the conservosphere to give a conflicted conservative a rhetorical mental off-ramp. I surveyed the top conservative podcasts in America, Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, and Matt Walsh. All have since settled on a general narrative of blaming the shooter's desire to harm rather than the shooter's weapon's ability to inflict harm. They also, these conservative yakkers, have heavily leaned into blaming the police response, which actually is pretty valid. But of course, the main directive that they always have is to placate the audience and ideally redirect that. What is that weird feeling? Is it guilt? No, couldn't be guilt guilt or culpability, better take that feeling and channel it into ire at anyone who would make us feel this weird way in the first place. Dan Bongino, a former police officer, grasped for any brick to beat liberals with. If there is a proclivity genetically for some of these kids to engage in psychopathological behavior like we saw yesterday, we can conclusively state that a poor nurturing environment a poor nurturing environment will only help that process along and make that person more dangerous. There is no doubt about that. Where's that conversation?
The left doesn't want to talk about any of that. Yes, the left hates emphasizing nurturing. If you need that to be the stereotype, why not go with it? Let's see. The left hates nurturing. They hate preschools. They're not at all soft and coddling. And the right, uh, they're against discipline in the military. Sure. Bongino was grasping. It was clear what he needed to tell his audience was that they're the good ones, and anyone who makes you the good ones question your goodness, those are the bad ones. So he put on a bit of a performance to prove that point. But you didn't do this. You did nothing wrong. Many of you are firearm owners because you fear this happening to your kids, and you want to be able to stand the chance. You didn't do this. And the fact that Joe Biden, through a wink and a nod, has decided to attack everyone but the actual problem, our culture rot, says everything you need to know. And Bongino attacked everyone who dared make a conservative feel compunction. And then he redirects that anger. Everyone I've talked to is beyond horrified imagining what would have happened if this was their kids and what those kids that died went through. Everyone. For you to attack us, as if we did this a day later, it's just so, so beyond the pale of grotesque. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm out of proper words to describe my disgust for you. Now, Matt Walsh, a Catholic, found inspiration in the words of Nancy Pelosi, who herself quoted the Bible after the Uvalde shooting. So how about that from the Gospel of Matthew, Nancy Pelosi? I mean, according to the Gospel of Matthew, you would be better off with a millstone around your neck drowning in the sea. That's not me talking. That's Jesus Christ talking. The Lord works in mysterious, and I'm going to say out of context ways. I included that just to show that negative partisanship is always right there. It's one way for editorialists, talk show hosts, bloggers, Fox commentators to turn this moment into a discussion that's deeper than guns or unsolvable through legislation about guns or just something different than guns. Here, Walsh talks about the shooter's psychology before any facts are known about the shooter. He acknowledges that. He seeks to dazzle the audience by what he knows about the shooter without even knowing anything. For, for instance, Walsh says that the murderer will possess a variety of antisocial traits. He predicts the murderer didn't have a girlfriend. He goes beyond that. He didn't have much or any moral or spiritual formation. He was empty, nihilistic, despairing. He had no purpose or direction. This is the case for almost all of the mass shooters. That's why I can predict it. Yes, mass murderers are usually miserable, isolated loners. When they have access to AR-15s, they can be quite dangerous. But they're deeply unhappy people, you see. That is what the discussion should be about. Right now, there are 40-something Republican senators who don't really want to move the conversation beyond the one that Walsh was having. The echo chambers in which most of these senators operate are reverberating with messages that seek to change the topics from guns to just about anything else. But right now, for a little while, the din of the general public is focused actually on guns as the real issue, not a different issue as the real issue after a large gun mass murder. And the din of the general public is a little bit louder than the omnipresent echo chamber. How long will that last? History shows not long enough to do anything, but right now there is a slim chance that our elected representatives might actually represent. (laughs) 
And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist in an assistant capacity. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is a member of the original Celtics, not this derivative imitation version that somehow finds itself in the NBA Finals. Also CEO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.